I rise in darkness. Gulp some water. Take a piss on a tussock in the yard. Come into the train carriage. Open the gas bottle. Draw a blue flame. Put water in the pot. Bring it to the boil. Press a coffee. Read a poem. Light a candle, and if it's cold enough, light a fire in the box in the corner of my little shack. This carriage disconnected from its train, detached from its rails, dissociated from even the concept of movement. But not entirely. Because if nothing else, we move through time. I've been inhabiting this space for nearly six months now. In summer, I was hardly ever here. I was either up in the mountains bushwalking or down in the city working as a performance storyteller. I'd come home for a couple of days at a time to read, to readjust, to birdwatch. <laughs> How long ago that seems now, though. It was my mate Danny who said it years ago. Living in a place with such distinct seasons makes it so much easier to mark the passage of time, to measure your age even. He'd spent some years in a tropical environment and I think I remember him describing time there as something like a sludge, an amorphous blob that he just sat in. But the seasons, they're like curtains. The moment summer ends, for example, you know it, on the spot and you already start to look back on it with a great deal of sentimentality as if it happened eons ago, as if it already has its sepia sheen on it, even though it was barely yesterday. And in winter you wonder if it were really possible that there were days so hot you leaped desperately into the dam to cool off, wore nothing but a pair of shorts well into the late evening. Your body can't possibly feel that. And then in summer... The long hours of darkness are unthinkable. You almost doubt the existence of such slow, quiet, cold, solitary months. And you can count back how many summers ago you did this or that, where you went in which winters. Each season is like a separate parcel, an allotment of time that you've been given. Seasons set the process of ageing in cement. The word autumn is just a mumble. A word murmured in a forest without an echo. Camouflaged within change. Now I start to see its signs around the yard and down the road. I mean the waxy fruit on the apple trees. 
blackberry bushes starting to dress like colourful clowns. The rose hips and hawthorn berries, black Christmas baubles on bare hedges. Soon the elms will be ablaze in yellow flames. And all those walls of firewood piled up around the farmhouses best be prepared to come down like those at Jericho. It is a season of owls and fat moths, the first mice, the last wasps, birds with beaks set northwards who bid us here adieu. It is a season of mountain mists, somnolence, bonfires, the constant wash of pale white light and bursts of colours. In Tasmania we only have one native deciduous tree, which we fondly call the Phagus, Nothophagus gunnii. Its leaves turn to shining coins of gold before dropping off to rot on quartzite. But this year this is all going to pass mostly out of sight, in the inaccessible acres of national parks which are closed as we hibernate and wait out the passing crisis. But the other seasonal burst of colour is one I'm lucky enough to be seeing all around me at the moment. I'm talking about fungi. There's bloody heaps of it here. All around the train. It started off with these puny little orange things that looked like fallen petals or drops of wax. But then a few big white buggers showed up and now they're all over the joint. I have this little brochure. A catalogue of Tasmanian mycology, which is called the fungi flip. I get lost in the midst of all these surreal figures that might show up. So incredibly diverse in every way, form and texture and colour. Some of them are truly gruesome. Little earth-born gremlins that probably induce nightmares. But others are cute, elegant, gorgeous. Maybe even somehow erotic, if you've been cooped up in isolation for a while. The fungi flip is truly a gift to the amateur scientist. But because it gives the names of each species pretty exclusively in Latin, and often I can't find the ones that I've seen around the yard in there anyway, I've taken to inventing my own names for the little mushies around the place. So there's this little collection of them around a rock out the back that I've called tie-dyed doilies and a red toadstool with flakes on the top of its crown that I'm naming Scabhead and another one with a tilted top on a skinny stem, who I've dubbed the Mexican Lady. Then there's the tiramisu fungi, the orange softy, the absconded convict, and another one I've called Nigel. There's also this bulky grey behemoth that popped up under the water tank which reminded me of a lady I met once at a bus station in Dallas, Texas. She was waiting to be taken cross-country on a trip she took annually to Eureka, Oregon. That's where I lost them, she said. I didn't ask who she meant, but I suppose often enough in conversations with Americans, you don't actually need to ask. My boys, she said. They left me one day, one day in the fall in a restaurant parking lot. But every year I go back there and wait for my boys. 
because I know they'll turn up there soon. You betcha. They'll be back. She was operating by a different logic to mine. It was as if she had her orbit and the boys had their own and it was just a matter of time before those two trajectories met. Or like her boys might be mushrooms that sprouted from their unseen source in the soil. And although they might appear in different spots each autumn, eventually they would come squeezing back through the cracks and the asphalt in that car park out west. I was not without sympathy. Autumn's also a season where memories are caught in an in-between state, where perhaps we're not sure what's true or false, where you might just sense ghosts at your windows or on your front porch. Who was I to tell this lady that her sons maybe weren't ever going to return? And besides, I was in Dallas on my own daft detour, looking for some work waiting for a potential patron who, of course, never arrived at the bus station. Of course, there aren't simply four seasons. Aboriginal calendars split the year up into six or eight or twelve sections, and in doing so, link them more closely to the nuances of local conditions within the wildly various ecosystems and climate of this wondrous country. So the symbols of a new season might be astronomical, like the appearance of certain stars, or to do with climate, such as when this wind becomes more prevailing or, or when the monsoon breaks into forceful rain. Or it might be to do with the return of migrant birds, such as the short-tailed shearwater, or the blossoming of flowers, wattles and waratahs. Not that long ago I read that one mob on the mainland described their version of this particular season as one of making, learning and playing games. Which seems the perfect fit for us in this situation. And I've been chuffed with how quickly mates of mine have improvised with their time and talents to create, invent and have fun in this unusual context. I hope that we hold on to it. Last year I was in Melbourne for a week of autumn. The deciduous trees around Royal Park were beautiful decorations. Olives and pomegranates in the northern suburbs offered up a feast for birds. 
I looked for native expressions of the season down on the beach of the Mornington Peninsula and along the banks of the Yarra, but I find them hard to see in a city so forcefully imposed on the landscape. Maybe out in the Yuyangs I'd have seen more clearly. In the Dandenongs. On Mount Donabuang. Instead I investigated what the season might mean in modern Melbourne. In the city streets I found it was a time for mirrored reflections. You'd exchange a gaze with a fellow pedestrian in a street corner window. Even the rough cubes of safety glass glinting on the bitumen seemed like a prism in which you might catch a glimpse of something around you. The sunlight angled low up the main thoroughfares out of the city, you see. The spars of the skyscrapers clear from afar like oversized landmarks to guide travellers from distant lands. And I drank fig cider with friends. Sat under shaggy casuarinas on the Merry Creek. And roamed through the night with the esteemed editor of a beer magazine who should remain unnamed. But he bought me a $40 pint of beer. Unforgettable, really. Although we were pretty pissed, so I don't actually remember it that well. Actually, for me, it was a return to the season and situation of farewell. Melbourne, the city through which I so often transit. Never without a poignant goodbye to say, a poem to tell as I fulfil the latest destiny, follow through with the latest departure. I left into the last stars, a band of white cloud that suddenly caught some morning light, as my tram squawked off towards Southern Cross Station, a woman tossed a cap full of water in its direction, a take on an old tradition, a gesture to wish me well on a journey. But this year there is no outward journey, no need for a benediction or a bon voyage, just a wide open space, this shelter, the raw materials of the bush, and my imagination. There's no shortage of projects to undertake, and this invitation to play around with it, to not take it too seriously, to figure it out as I go along, well, it's great. It means it's a season to make learn and play. I was also reading something the other day about a tribe somewhere in the world who disbands for a couple of months in the middle of the year. For them the separation happens because it's time to go out collecting honey rather than relying on communal hunting. But the point that stood out to me was that this period apart from one another was understood as a chance to form new friendships and forget old rivalries, to refresh the tribe's social life when they reunited after they'd plundered the honey. And I thought, that's not such a bad thing, is it? This could really be quite handy for us as well.
Elsewhere other seasons simmer on the hob. I receive messages from Europe in spring. A season of optimism. I remember an April day on the train coming out of Riga, heading back through the southern districts of Estonia. The train moved with glacial slowness, as grey as an antique gun. Spring had been slow in coming at those latitudes. But now the ravens knocked the last clumps of snow off branches, contemplating turning out a leaf. The fields that had been sown with nothing more than frost now put out a crop of rich brown earth. There was an ancient apple tree anchored to one paddock, a symbol that change would come again and again, but that you could remain sturdy in the throes of everything. Over a forest of fir trees, lichen lacework strung up everywhere as if for a craft fair. A pack of stray storks honked and kept on moving. And by the Emayogi River, I met a young philosopher in tropical orange lipstick who spoke of transporting herself between places without ever leaving, as if she'd conjured up a technique for teleportation. A few days later, I was in Gorizia, northeast Italy, and there spring's reckless fecundity was on full display, flowers resurrected and birds returning to revisit past pleasures. Vines climbed up to every ridgeline, beginning again the first intimations of the vintage. Terracotta and marble shone in sunlight. The very grass seemed ready to burst into iridescent colour and insects crawled up my wrists as I sat down to write in my notebook. I was drinking wine the colour of quicksilver and thinking of home. I was still many months away from returning to Tasmania, to a share house that would smell of jasmine when I got there, as if there was some communication between those two springs at either end of the world. On a much more recent April afternoon, I sat in a spot I've made for myself by a mountain-born river in northern Tasmania. I had with me a book, as usual, and more bright wine. But also with me was this Estonian philosopher who had appeared without warning after many years. I pointed out the autumn trends in this landscape, the architecture of jackjumpers renovating their nests, the last shriveled currants on the caprosma bushes, the twisted orange seed pods of the blackwoods. And I told her of a thought I often have, that someday this stretch of the river would sadly change, that such special places could not remain, would not stay the same, that the various crises of overpopulation and ecological collapse would surely lead to the destruction of my little dream forest there, alongside the river. I said I pictured myself an old man looking back on the luck I had to encounter that spot as it was, to live near it and have the time to make the most of its beauty and serenity. It seemed strange to be imagining my future self, imagining me as I am now. But it turns out that I'm not alone. The Estonian said she'd read of this, and I might be able to think of this as an act of retroprospective nostalgia. 
I was setting myself up for sentimental disappointment. That may be so. Yet I find in turn that this condition could also lead me to a greater sense of gratitude. I promise you, I have savoured everything. The fortune to travel freely and the tremendous luck to have been born where I want to live. Believing it will all be taken from me someday, one way or another, must seem pessimistic. But I have lived the last decade or so of my life so very positively. I have cherished it. These moments by the river. The branches shimmering in the wind. Ducks navigating downstream towards the sea. Even if I might sometimes speak of it all prematurely in the past tense. God, I was lucky now. Nostalgia. If you look at the etymology of the word, it's pretty much related specifically to place. Nostos is an old Greek word for homecoming. And the other bit of it, the algia, that's pain. Nostalgia is those pangs you get when you're far away and wish you were back in the cosy confines of home. But of course, the sentimental pain you might feel doesn't always relate to geographical coordinates. I've taken this week to eating a breakfast that I favoured back in childhood. Wheat bix. Covered with warm milk, smothered with honey. The smell of the flaky biscuits of cereal dissolving, going soggy is sufficiently romantic an experience. I have missed it while I've been travelling in the past and it does immediately take me back to being eight or nine years old, bare-legged in the winter curled up on the couch eating brekkie. I know myself well enough by now to realise that there are countless little details about living in this train carriage that I'm going to miss someday. Smells and textures and sounds and specific objects that are going to remind me of train living. It's not that I know exactly what they are yet, but I know that's part of my future, no doubt about it. Looking back on all this, you may have noticed I'm a bit of a sentimental git. But I think 
for everyone it's going to be the same. There will be relics of this strange time, relics of lockdown, of epidemic, relics of 2020 that will someday instantly recall this period of upheaval. We're looking ahead at a really tough time for most of us. But with our natural human resilience, that creative aptitude to adapt to new circumstances really quickly, looking back, we'll find positives. There will even be things we miss. It's not that we forget suffering and loss, but they do tend to get smoothed out like river stones along the way, especially once the fear is extracted from it. Strangely, I reckon that we'll find that we become nostalgic about this event even. I look about and try to soak it up. Take note of the things I'm feeling and seeing. Try to imagine that this is an ethnographic museum that tells how one bloke lived through the coronavirus. He had a lot to read, they'll say. There are the bottles of wine that are going to be emptied by the end of it. My father's homemade relishes and chutneys which I pilfered from him. The various containers in which I cached my food so as not to make this place a haven for rats. The funny plastic tube that I used to press coffee. My camp shower set up. Most of all, I suppose, these stories. With the sounds of the birds in the background and and what's humming below every single word. The various things I feel. The uncertainty. The determination. The humility. The loneliness. The hopefulness. The gratitude. And the desire to share, even in solitude. And most obvious of all, maybe, the readiness already to say these were the days. <laughs>